welcome to the podcast of Follow Baptist Church. Our vision and mission is to follow Jesus in our community for His glory. We hope and pray that you are blessed, challenged and inspired by this message. For more information on Follow Church, you can visit our website at www.followchurch.com.au. Sanjeev and Rihanna. If you've got your Bibles with you today, you can turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible, there are Bibles on the end of the row. And if you don't own a Bible, that is our gift to you, for you to keep. Today, the chapter we're looking at uh, is continuing our series called Patent, which is on the first letter written by Paul to Timothy. Today, in the second chapter, there are 15 verses But we are going to be camping in the last five. Let me commend the first ten to you. They are wonderful verses. There is so much in it. As I studied that this week and uh, picked it apart, there are some wonderful gems in there that we can mine out. And so I'd encourage you in your own time to to look through those verses and to ask God to speak to you through those. Maybe explore them in your uh, MCG groups this week. But today we're going to be camping the majority of our time in the last five verses. However, I will read the whole chapter for context. Last week, we were introduced to this letter written by Paul, and we talked about the investment uh, he makes into Timothy's life as a result of the intimacy they shared. And so today, he goes on to give more instructions about life, faith, and church. Let's pick it up at chapter 2, verse 1. It says, I urge then, first of all, that requests, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for everyone for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. This is good and pleases God our Saviour who wants all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus who gave himself as a ransom for all men, the testimony given in its proper time. And for this purpose I was appointed a herald and an apostle, I am telling the truth, I am not lying, and a teacher of the true faith to the Gentiles. I want men everywhere to lift up holy hands in prayer, without anger or disputing. I also want women to dress modestly, with decency and propriety, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or expensive clothes, but with good deeds appropriate for women who profess to worship God. A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man. She must be silent. For Adam was firmed, firm, sorry, formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not the one deceived, it was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. But women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love and holiness with propriety. God help me as we look at this passage. <laughs> Let's bow our heads again. Lord God, we just know your word's incredible. We know that it's uh, exciting and it's life-giving, but man, it's challenging at times. And today as we come to a challenging passage, Lord, I just pray that we would uh, faithfully look at what your word says, that we continue to wrestle with it. If we come to a point of agreeing to disagree, Lord, I pray we do it with grace and with love. But most of all, Lord God, we want to do what your word says. We want to honour you. We want to worship you. And everything we do, we want to bring glory to you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. That was the close of the service. <laughs> Prior to the launch of Fellow Baptist Church, Our core team did a lot of diligent work trying to locate a venue for us to meet in. Uh, Lots of doors open, lots of doors closed. And when we were planning to open the church, it just so uh, coincided with the fact that Cadinia Shire were building their council offices at the same time. And so we thought that perhaps that could be a venue that we could meet in. 
And so one Sunday afternoon after church at Beaconsfield Baptist, myself and Robin Jackie Shrewers drove down to the venue to see if there was anyone working there and maybe they could give us a bit of a look inside the building. And so we rocked up to our disappointment. It looked really dead. There were no cars in the car park. There was no one there. Um, but just as we were about to leave, we noticed that there was a single door down the bottom of the building that was wide open. It wasn't just unlocked, it was wide open. We thought that was a little strange. It made us a little bit curious. And if you know Jackie well, it might as well have been a written invite to go inside and help yourself. And so that's what she did. She thought, well, let's go and check it out. And she poked her head in inside the door and with her really quiet voice, uh, she yelled out, that was a joke, uh, is, is anybody there? Silence. Nobody answered. Once again, that was seen as an invite to go in and help yourself. And so Jackie walked straight in. Rob and I were a bit reluctant, so we sort of stood back. And everything went well for the first couple of seconds until the alarm went off. Now, when I say an alarm, this was like a mega alarm. It was like the whole building was yelling out. It was like, beep, beep, beep. There was lights flashing, warning, 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 warning. I'm starting to panic. I'm seeing the headlines. Local Baptist pastor uh, breaks into the council buildings. And I don't know what Rob was thinking, but I went straight into Adam in the garden mode. I was ready when the cops got there just to push Jackie out in front and say, it's not our fault. It's the woman that was placed here with us. I don't know what Jackie would have said. Maybe she would have said, the devil made me do it. And and all of that would have been very biblical. So we jumped in the car, we spun the wheels, we burned off and the police chased us through the back. No, that didn't happen. That bit was made up. We waited around for 10 minutes or so. Nobody came. Nothing um, happened, even though we did hear police signs that we thought were coming for us at one point in time. And so after about 10 minutes of waiting around, um, we just basically slunk off with our tail between our legs, uh, thinking maybe this was a sign from God that this is not the venue for us. <laughs> this morning, we've come to a part of the Bible, which is one of the most debated and disagreed upon passages of Scripture. It's really the first hot topic that we have addressed as a church since Follow Baptist Church commenced. It's the topic of the role of men and women in the church. And this week, as I was preparing for it, as I was praying, as I was laying in bed having sleepless nights, all I could hear in my head was warning, 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 just like that day at the council building, because I know it is a hot topic. Here is a man potentially talking about the role of women, what could possibly go wrong. I feel a bit like a dead man walking. But even saying that, as I said before, we're going to camp in the last five verses of this passage. And I said before, it's a hard part of scripture. We need to wrestle with what does this passage mean? It's so tempting to get to a passage like this and kind of just skip over it. And that would be much easier for everyone. I was talking last week after the service to someone here, uh, a guy that will remain nameless. And I told him that we were going to address this topic this week. And I I think he said tongue in cheek, maybe just out of uh, my own personal safety. He said, don't go there. And it would be a lot easier not to go there. And if we were a church that preached topically, uh, these are the sorts of issues that you can kind of skip around and avoid and pick and choose the things that you want to talk about. One of the things I love about preaching through a book is that we're forced to confront some of the difficult parts of Scripture. And I really hope and pray that we'll never be a church that fails to wrestle with all of God's Word. And so even though today it's easier not to go there, in God's design and wisdom we need to acknowledge that He's put this in His Word and therefore it must be important. So I said a moment ago, it's a hot topic uh, inside the church. It's also a hot topic in the world around us. 
with much debate happening over issues of gender and roles and relationships and discrimination and equality. And so I realise when you preach on a topic such as this, there is the potential of offence because you'll get people all the way over on this extreme end of the opinion and you'll get other people all the way over on this extreme end of the opinion and you'll have people everywhere in between. And so my aim today is not to offend as many people as I can, but what I am hoping to do is present what I believe this passage is teaching. And so before we get started, I'm going to lay down some ground rules. I know we love, we all love ground rules, don't we? We love, more rules the better, right? Don't answer that. That's okay. Well, I'm going to lay down some ground rules. And what I want you to do is as I go through each ground rule, I want you to nod if you've heard me. Okay? I want to make sure that you get these ground rules. Because these ground rules are laid down for us as we wrestle with this topic, but also with every controversial topic that we will address as a church over time. And so are we ready? Ground rule number one. I am the lead pastor, you'll do what you're told. No, that's, that's not it. I am the lead pastor, but I in no way dictate to us as a church what we must believe. I will always seek to uh, prepare faithfully from God's word to the very best of my understanding. I'll be diligent in study and prayer, and I do my best to present what I believe God is saying, but I always invite you to check it out for yourselves rather than just blindly accepting what I say. Did we get the first one? Not... Three people got it. Did we get the first one? Not our heads. Excellent. Very good. Ground rule number two. We are a Baptist church and we are congregationally governed. We hope to soon have elders and deacons put in place. Um, and as a leadership team, we will lead. But the congregation always has input and ultimately the final say through a voting process. And so collectively, we discern together on theology and practice. Okay? Excellent. Very good. Number three, I am always happy for people to disagree. And when people disagree, I will humbly take on board different views, even if it means that the end result is that we'll have to agree to disagree. Okay? Number four, as Christians and certainly as a church, our basis of belief is God's word. Just recently on Facebook, I saw a pastor friend of mine I know who now um, coaches other churches and he made a comment about this exact issue. He posted a video about women in ministry and he put the comment, pastors, it's time that we get a new leadership paradigm on this. It's the year 2016. Now, for me, that's a really poor argument. doesn't matter whether it's the year 2016 or 2,976. God's word doesn't change. And so if we shift with culture, we will constantly abandon God's word in many ways. Cultural understanding varies from country to country, um, from state to state, sometimes from suburb to suburb. Culture in Australia will change in the next 12 months, in the next 10 years, in the next 50 years, in the next 100 years. And so if we simply shift with the culture, we will constantly change what we believe. Uh, the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 12, don't conform any longer to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will know God's good and pleasing will. So a question I would ask you in this regard is this, is our culture by and large drawing us towards God or is it by and large drawing us away from God? I'll let you answer that yourself and now that you've answered in your head, in your head let me ask you another question. If we resemble culture more and more, are we representing God more or less? That's another interesting question. David Platt says that it's not God's word that is out of date, but rather our culture that is out of line. And so we need to decide as a church whether we're going to simply reflect our culture or whether God's word will be our anchor. Having said all of that, we need to keep wrestling with God's word, particularly with the difficult passages to discern by his word and by his spirit what they actually mean, which brings me to ground rule number five. 
We need to approach God's word with humility. Can I encourage each of you to keep studying, keep exploring God's word, keep humbly seeking the Lord on what it means for us? Because the truth is none of us know it all. I guess we've all met Christians that present like they know it all. I don't know how you find those people. I find them repelling. I find they push people away from faith. And so none of us have a monopoly on truth. We're still wrestling with scripture. And we need to acknowledge that God's word, in many ways, the gospel is very simple, but in other ways, it's highly complex. And so for us to get to the point where we feel like we've arrived and we know it all is setting ourselves up for an incredible fall. The Bible says God exalts the humble, but he humbles the proud. And I think he's designed his word that we would keep wrestling with it. It's not like any old novel that you read once and then just shove it on the shelf. It's alive and it's active. And so we will keep wrestling with God's word from now until Jesus returns. And so let's approach God's word with humility. The last one is above all else, we need to be people who are gracious. Uh, I know many, many people over the years that I've met that have left church because they have someone in the church who disagrees with their particular opinion on an issue. Um, the question is, what happens when we get to our workplace on a Monday morning and we find workmates that disagree with our opinion? Do we go to the boss and quit? What about at family dinner when we sit down and mum and dad say something or our brother and sister says something that we disagree with? Do we pick up, smash the plate and storm out? Uh, of course we don't because we're family. Church, we are family. And so when we disagree on areas of scripture, that's okay, but we need to keep wrestling with God's word, but always do it with gentleness, respect, patience, humility, and grace. And so today throughout this, uh, sorry, the ground rules okay? Excellent, we forgot to nod our heads for those last few, so just one big nod says, yes, they're all okay. Today I will be, um, by and large, presenting my view, and I am one voice to consider uh, in light and, and to weigh up in light of Scripture. Um, I have a view, but I, to be fair to say, my view's changed over time, and I'm continuing to wrestle with this exact issue, and I encourage you to as well. And so what I present today is the place I've come to based on what I've read from Scripture at this point in my journey. The other thing I need to say today is that there's a lot to cover today. There's a lot of ground we're going to cover, so get comfortable. Um, but I want to say that whatever I say today is going to be inadequate to completely address this issue. There are hundreds of books that have been written on this passage and this exact issue. And so in the notes on your Bible app on the phone, I put a whole lot of links there that will link you to preaching series and also um, essays and um, topical things on the internet. And they present um, two different views. And so if this is an area of theology that interests you, I would encourage you to keep exploring those things via those links. Today, I'm going to present two opposing views when it comes to the role of men and women. And they're both big words, so hang with me on these. The first view is called complementarianism. And this is the view that was most commonly held and was rarely debated or disputed up until about the last 30 or 40 years. Complementarianism holds to the equality of men and women as people all created in God's image but complementarians hold to gender distinctions when it comes to functional roles in the church and in the home. In this viewpoint, the male has been given the role of headship, which is an important term to remember, in the home and in the church, but women serve in equally important but different and complementary roles in both the home and church. And so a simple sentence to present the complementarian view to you would be equal but different, equal but unique. The other view is the view that is called egalitarianism. 
It's a viewpoint that has certainly grown in popularity over the last few decades, and it's a belief that there are no biblical-based gender distinctions on the roles of men or women. In this view, we're all one in Christ, and so there are no gender distinctions, and women and men are simply interchangeable when it comes to functional roles both in church and in the home. And so a simple sentence to summarise the egalitarian view would be equal and the same. Equal and the same in terms of role. Now, I think before we unpack some of this, it's important to highlight what both of these views have in common. First thing to highlight is this, that both the egalitarian and complementarian view would see men and women as absolutely equal in value and worth in God's eyes. They are both created in the image of God. So complementarians wouldn't say, well, I see men as here and women as down here. And egalitarians wouldn't say, well, I see women up here and I see men down there. Both views would say women and men are equal in value in God's eyes because they're created in his image. The second thing that both of these have in common is that in both views, men and women are seen to be vitally important in human flourishing. They are dependent on one another and both men and women have important roles to play in both the home and in the church. And so the difference in views is basically the function of men and women and the roles they play. They are either equal and different or equal and the same. And so the complementarian view, uh, equal but different, would define man's role as the role of headship. Matt Chandler from the Village Church defines headship in this way. Headship is the unique role, uh, the unique leadership role of the man in the work of establishing order for human flourishing. Now, this headship brings up challenging concepts for us in the culture we're immersed in. Uh, concepts such as authority and submission, both of which are generally viewed as negative concepts when it comes to the role between men and women. However, I think in the Bible, uh, particularly in the area of marriage, it actually presents uh, this role of headship. And so if you've got your Bibles, you can flick over with me to Ephesians chapter 5. I'm going to take you to what is my favourite passage in all of Scripture when it comes to the marriage relationship. Start at verse 21, chapter 5 says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, there's the headship concept, as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the saviour. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated his own body, but he feeds it and cares for it just as Christ does the church, for we are members of his body." For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. I think it's fair to note that what we see in this passage is a a God-given order for marriage, but it's also something that's seen as unacceptable to many people in our culture today. I remember when I was speaking, doing the speech at my brother's wedding over a decade ago, I made a comment about him being the head of the home and the person sitting in the front row audibly scoffed and said, you've got to be joking. 
And so that, I think, in a lot of ways reflects the way culture sees this concept of headship. But I think when we dig down deeper into this marriage relationship, we'll actually find out that it's beautiful in God's design. And what we'll also see in this passage, I believe, is that the demand is greater on the husband than it is on the wife. It starts by saying, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. So important to acknowledge that in leadership, in the home, that there is always mutual submission that we're submitting to one another, we're serving one another, we're laying our lives down for one another. But then Paul outlines what this looks like in the context of marriage. He said, husband is the head of the wife, wives submit to your husbands in everything. I just lost all the women in the room. All the men are going, preach it brother, you're on the right track. Women, hang with me for a second, men get ready for it. Because it says this, it says, Husbands, you ought to love your wives as Christ loved the church. How did he love the church? He literally laid his life down with radical self-sacrificial love. He didn't lord it over the church. He, He laid his life down for her. Men, this is what we're meant to be in our marriages. Not the boss, not the one lording it over people, but people who radically lay our lives down with self-sacrificial love for our wives and for our children. Let me tell you, I don't think there's a woman on the planet that would have problems submitting to a man who loves her that way. Because everything he does is to protect her, to serve her, to love her, to to watch over her, to help her flourish in her God-given gifts, to help her move forward in her faith, to help her to be the person God's designed her to be. And so people can look at this passage from a worldly perspective and and disagree with it. But if they sat down at the dinner table of a home where this was working its way out as God designed, I think the arguments would stop. Because what they would see is a wife who is being loved and cherished, valued and protected by a husband who's laying his life down for her. What they would see is a husband leading his family with self-sacrificial love, pointing his family to Jesus. What they would see is kids who are built up, encouraged, growing, also knowing that they are loved and cherished. And so they may argue with the principle, but if they were in a home where this was working out as God designed it to, they couldn't argue with how it's working out in the home. People may see the beauty that's in this design. The problem, of course, is this, that often men have failed in the role of headship. They've become one of two things, passive, selfish, self-centered, lazy men who sit around on the couch watching TV rather than sacrificially serving their wives and their family. On the other end of the coin, you've got men who have become dominating, lording it over their family, abusing their wives and kids, ruling with an iron fist. And as a result of either of those two approaches, what we see is the family unit breaking down. I think it's hard to debate that when you look at our culture. When men don't do what God's designed them to do, the family breaks down. And so the challenge today is squarely on the shoulders of the men here. I want to challenge you, uh, if you're not already living out what the Bible teaches about being a husband and a man in your family, I want to encourage you to step up, to come back to the Word, to rely on the Holy Spirit, to to fill you and empower you to be the man you've designed to be. Because the truth is, listen to me this morning, none of us can do it in our own strength. We will gravitate to our own sinful desires. That's why we gravitate to laziness or abuse because of our sinful nature. And so, men, we need to draw on the power of the Holy Spirit to be the men God's designing us to be. 
And so coming back to today's passage, we see how Paul is teaching how this headship works its way out in the church context. How do I know that's true? Well, in chapter 3 that we're going to look at next week, in verse 15, he says that he's showing how people should conduct themselves in God's household. Now, when we read a passage such as this one in Timothy, from first reading, it would seem that Paul is being critical of the woman, or in some way he sees her as inferior. But I actually don't believe at all that that's what Paul is trying to portray. In fact, overall, if I could summarize what I think he's trying to say, is ultimately this. This is a criticism of the man who has failed in the role of headship. Now, when it comes to a complementarian view of Scripture, this passage in 1 Timothy is one of the most compelling proof text that is often used, although it certainly isn't the only one. Um, Let me read to you from 1 Corinthians chapter 14. This is once again the Apostle Paul speaking into a different place, a different culture at a different time. And he says these words, For God is not a God of disorder, but of peace. As in all the congregation of the Lord's people, women should remain silent in the churches. They are not allowed to speak, but must be in submission, as the law says. If they want to inquire about something, they should ask their own husbands at home, for it's disgraceful for a woman to speak in the church. Or did the word of God originate with you, or are you the only people it has reached? If anyone thinks they are a prophet or otherwise gifted by the Spirit, let them acknowledge that what I am writing to you is the Lord's command. But if anyone ignores this, they will themselves be ignored. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, be eager to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues, but everything should be done in a fitting and orderly way. Now, for a moment, um, I think we need to stop and we need to acknowledge something. What we need to acknowledge is this, that in our culture, the sentiments expressed by Paul in this passage are viewed, generally speaking, as unacceptable, inappropriate, politically incorrect, even discriminatory. And for Christians, this makes this passage a rather inconvenient one and a very difficult one. So we need to park that over there and understand the culture that we're immersed in. But over the other side here, we've also got to acknowledge, and I think at a greater level, that what we're reading here is Scripture, that this is actually God's Word. And God has placed this in Scripture, in His wisdom, so there must be a reason and we need to wrestle with that. Now, those who hold a complementarian view of Scripture would take this passage as it's written and believe that it highlights God's unique order for men and women in church life. And so to hold to an egalitarian view, you've got to do one of two things. Uh, The first thing, uh, you've got to just completely ignore passages such as this. Now, we know that that's unacceptable. We know from Scripture that God's Word is God-breathed, that it is uh, useful for teaching and correction and rebuke and for training in all righteousness. So to pick and choose what we want and leave what we don't want is an unacceptable way to approach Scripture. And I've got to say that any good egalitarian won't do that. They will actually come to this passage and they will wrestle with it. And so the second thing you'd have to do if you hold an egalitarian view of this passage is to explain what it actually means and why it's no longer applicable for us today. And so let me talk about a couple of ways that this is often done. First of all, people point to this passage in 1 Timothy and they say it's simply circumstantial. This is Paul talking to a certain church at a certain time that was facing a certain problem and the problem they would say is this, that there were women preachers that were preaching false doctrine and to compound that they were in that culture uneducated and so Paul puts this restriction on women because of those two things. Now I I don't think they stack up because when you look at the first chapter of 1 Timothy, Paul makes it clear that there is false teaching in the church but he highlights the fact that it's men 
Verse 3, he commands Timothy, uh, commands certain men not to keep teaching false doctrine. And so uh, if there's a, a problem with false teaching, it doesn't mention the women, it only mentions the men. And so it would seem strange that Paul's now prohibiting only women when it seems like the, uh, most of the false teaching is coming, if not all of the false teaching is coming from the men. The second thing is this, that uh, what we know of the culture, this letter was written to Ephesus, which was a Greek culture. And in that culture, they had a, a thirst and a desire for knowledge. And in that culture, it wasn't uncommon for a lot of the women to actually be highly educated, particularly from the wealthy families. They would ensure that their uh, daughters were highly educated in the world to have this knowledge that they so desired. And so for me, the whole argument of it simply being circumstantial doesn't really stack up with the evidence that we have. The second argument that people come up with is uh, that it's cultural that Paul simply found himself in a patriarchal society where men basically ruled everything, and that is true. That's basically the culture that he was in. And so Paul, in order to um, save face and not to wreck the credibility of the church, actually stopped women from preaching in church so that it would reflect the culture around him. Once again, we've got to weigh that up and say, well, does that make sense when we look at Paul's other writing? He's the one who wrote, don't conform any longer to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. When you look at Paul's teaching, he's not the sort of guy that bows to cultural norms. He's the kind of guy that swims against the tide and will regularly challenge culture in his preaching and in his life. And so for me, the cultural one doesn't really stack up either. But I think the greatest wrestle, if you hold an egalitarian point of view from this um, passage, the greatest obstacle is actually the passage itself. Because we see that Paul actually gives a reason for his instruction and it's got nothing to do with the cultural setting. It's got nothing to do with the fact that it's circumstantial. If we look at it um, in verse 11, we'll see that he actually roots his argument in the creation order. And not only that, but in the fall of mankind. So verse 11, let's read it again. A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or assume authority over a man. She must be quiet like it is in this room right now. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. There he is linking it with God's creative order. And then in verse 14, and Adam was not the one deceived, it was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. He's now linking it into the fall of mankind. And so to understand all this, I think we need to go back to the creation account to get a bit of a glimpse of what's going on. Uh, If you want to turn there, you can to Genesis chapter 2. And we see in this account that God created Adam. And then he placed Adam in the Garden of Eden. In verse 15, he outlines what Adam's God-given role is in this context. It says, The Lord God took the man, put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to take care of it. And so Adam's primary role is to care for the garden and to work it. This is the role he's been given as a man to create order in the garden um, fit for human flourishing. And so God creates Adam and he creates the animals. And then he says, Adam, you can name all the different animals. And so he comes up with all the different names. And then in verse 18, he says this, The Lord God said, it's not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now, once again, the word helper, very unhelpful in the English language. Because when we think of a helper, we think of someone who's lesser, don't we? An apprentice, a lackey, someone just helping the person who really knows what they're doing. And so we need to go back to the Hebrew of this word, and it's actually the word azar, and it's the exact same word that's used to describe God himself in other parts of the Old Testament. For example, in Exodus chapter 18, verse 4, it says, my father's God was my Azar, my helper, for he saved me from the sword of Pharaoh. 
Psalm 33:20. We wait in hope for the Lord. He is our help, our azar, and our shield. And so with that in mind, it's clear that when uh, the woman is called the helper, we're not talking about someone who is inferior because God's never inferior. He's the King of Kings. He's the Almighty God. And so we need to wrestle with what this word means. What I believe that this word is actually communicating, the word helper, is that a helper is someone who comes alongside the person who's been given the primary responsibility. In this case, Adam has the responsibility to lead and create order for human flourishing, and the woman now comes alongside him to work with him in equal but different and complementary ways. And so in this whole creation order, God gives man a unique role, but he also gives woman a unique role in all of this, and one of those roles is to bear children. The last verse of the passage, if you skipped ahead, is quite confusing. It says this, that women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love and holiness with propriety. Now that's a confusing verse and I think the most likely explanation is this, that Eve gave birth to children and eventually one of her descendants was Jesus by which all people are saved. We know that the gospel teaches there's only one way to be saved and that's to put our faith in Jesus Christ, to accept what he did for us on the cross when he died in our place, to say sorry and repent of our sins and to accept him as our Lord and Saviour. Romans says that we're only saved if we believe in our heart and declare with our mouth that Jesus is Lord. And so this passage can't possibly be teaching that women are only changed, uh, only saved by childbirth. That would make no sense with the rest of scripture. What I think it's saying is this, that in God's creation order, from this point on, without women, mankind would soon cease to exist. Man is dependent on woman, woman is dependent on man, and they are both dependent on God. And so this morning... I could jump up and down and I could talk about equality and I could, could say, it's not fair, I want to give birth to children. <laughs> but the truth is, in God's design, that I'm not giving birth to children anytime soon. God's designed it that way. He's made it that way. It doesn't mean I'm greater than the woman or lesser than the woman. It just means I've got a different role. Now, don't get me wrong. I've been at all the births of my children and, and I don't want that role. Uh, I'm very happy with the role God's given me in the procreation process. In fact, I quite enjoy it. Um, maybe that's too much for church. I don't know. Um, but I don't want to swap roles. Um, but I think you know what I'm saying this morning, that we have been given unique, important and complementary roles and we are actually dependent on one another. You know, I think we have an incorrect perception sometimes of what equality is. Our culture says equality is that we must be able to do exactly the same things. And if we can't, that's inequality. Now, that doesn't even work in the Godhead. Got God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, all one, all God, all doing distinct roles within the Godhead. There's even submission in the Godhead. We know that God the Son submits to God the Father. We know that God the Father and God the Son sent God the Spirit. We know God the Spirit submits to both the Son and the Father. And so in the Godhead, we see unique roles. In the Godhead, we see submission. So they can't be, in and of themselves, bad things. In fact, I think they're God things. And so we need to come back to what all of this means. You see, our equality doesn't come from what we do. Our equality comes from who we are. And so we are equal because every single one of us, whether we're a man or a woman, are created in the image of God. Genesis chapter 1, verse 27 points that out. It says, so God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Equal, but unique in their roles. In verse 21 of the Genesis account, 
we see where the woman actually came from. It says, so the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then he closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he'd taken out of man and he brought her to the man. I love what Matthew Henry says in his commentary about this verse. He says, the woman was made out of a rib out of the side of Adam, not made out of his head to rule over him, not made out of his feet to be trampled upon by him, but out of his side to be equal with him, under his arm to be protected, near his heart to be beloved. It's a beautiful way of putting it. Verse 23, the man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She should be called, whoa, man, which we translate as woman, for she was (laughs) taken out of man. In God's creation, men and women have been given uniquely important but unique roles to play. And Paul grounds his church leadership argument uh, in teaching in God's creative order. So he roots it in creation, but he also grounds it in the fall. We see this in verse 14. And Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. There's his link back to the fall. Now, what does all this mean? Well, we saw before that Adam was given the primary responsibility and the primary task and role of establishing order in creation. As part of that, he was given a command that all of us would have heard before. It's found in Genesis chapter 2, verse 16. It says, And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will certainly die. Now, it's interesting to note that Adam was given that command before Eve was created. How do we know that? Well, the next verse gives it away. The Lord God said, it's not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. And so Paul's now linking it back into the fall of mankind. And so if we were to read the Genesis account and we were to read this letter to Timothy, we could easily say it's Eve's fault. But when we look at Romans chapter 5, which interestingly is also written by the Apostle Paul, we see that he lays the blame squarely, not at the feet of Eve, but he puts it on the shoulder of Adam. Chapter 5, verse 12 says, Death came through one man, and that man was Adam. And so why would he be blamed when Eve took the fruit and ate it first? Well, I believe he was blamed because he failed in the role of headship. Adam wasn't actually deceived in the garden. But what he did was even worse. Genesis chapter 3 says, When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and she ate it. She also gave some to her useless, I put that word there, husband who was with her and he ate it as well. Now, Adam knew full well what was happening. He was the one that was given the command. He knew what they were doing was wrong. He knew that God had said if they ate from that tree, they would surely die. And yet he stood back. The passage says he was with Eve. He stood back. He watched her eat the fruit as if to say, let's see how this goes. Uh, Adam, uh, Eve ate the fruit. She didn't drop dead. And so then Adam said, well, She didn't drop dead. Maybe she won't surely die. Give me the fruit and I'll have some as well because maybe I'll also be like God. What we're seeing in that account is an epic failure in his God-given role to protect and to create order for human flourishing in the garden in what was primarily his responsibility. And so it's the creative order and also the fall in 1 Timothy that Paul now links back to the church pointing to the order that God has designed. And so scripture, I think from what we've seen today, teaches that there's design for uh, marriage, there's order in, in marriage. The Bible shows that there's order in creation. And I think what Paul is now saying is that there's also order in church. And as part of that order, there is headship. And it's a unique role of the man to lead and to do the primary teaching. Now, I know that doesn't sit well in our culture. 
And what I want to really make clear today is this, that it does in no way mean that women don't have a role in the church or aren't absolutely critical in the life of the church. Follow Baptist Church would not exist if it wasn't for so many of the women that serve in this church in so many ways with the gifts God's given them. And we are in great debt to the women that God uses in this place. The New Testament is also full of women in ministry, exercising their gifts in many ways. Now, let me give you some examples. In Acts chapter 8, verse 4, men and women were told to go and preach the gospel wherever they went. Acts chapter 18, Priscilla, with her husband Aquila, taught Apollos and fixed up parts of his doctrine. In Acts 21, verse 9, Philip the evangelist had four daughters who all prophesied. In 1 Corinthians 11, women prayed and prophesied in church. In Titus chapter 2, older women are told to teach the younger women. In Matthew chapter 28, after Jesus rises from the dead, who does he appear to first? He appears to the women as if to highlight their value and their importance in a culture where they were often downtrodden. In Matthew chapter 28, we also see the Great Commission, where we're all told to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything Jesus has commanded. And so there's no way that Paul can be excluding women from all ministry in church because they're encouraging that direction in so many other parts of Scripture. And so what I believe he's saying is this, that the role of headship within a church, as in marriage, as in creation, has been primarily given to the man. And when men serve sacrificially and lovingly, laying their lives down as elders for those they are overseeing in the church, preaching God's word and leading, it should be an environment where both men and women flourish in their God-given gifts and grow in their faith in their life and the way they express those gifts. So let me ask the question as we close, what would it look like to be an egalitarian believing church? Well, it would mean that women and men would, would do all roles. They would be interchangeable in their roles. Um, what would it look like to be um, a complementarian church, a church that holds to that view of Scripture? Well, it would look very similar to what it looks like now. At the moment, we've got a core team made up of men and women um, serving uh, and managing different areas of the church. Um, and so what would happen is that we would simply add another layer of leadership, which is what the Bible calls eldership. Next week, Dave's going to preach on chapter 3. It talks all about elders and deacons. And so we would have elders in place and they would be an oversight team of godly qualified men working hand in hand with a diaconate or a management team made up of qualified men and women. And together they would discern uh, the direction of the church. It would be overseen by the elders, but drawing on the opinions of the men and women in the management team and drawing on the opinions and the views and the thoughts of the congregation, both men and women. And so what we would see is simply men and women serving God in different but equally important and complementary roles for the glory of God. This is all really important because we're coming up to the 5th of June, which is our AGM. And we're hoping and praying under God that we'll establish an eldership and a diaconate. Um, There's nomination forms at the hub and I'd encourage you to grab those on the way out. And I would encourage each of you, particularly the members of the church, to prayerfully consider the men and the women you could nominate for these specific roles based on the qualifications that Scripture teach. And so I encourage you to wrestle with God's Word. I encourage you to pray. And we're going to sort of unpack this a little bit more uh, next week in chapter 3. And so are you still with me? Are we still friends? 
I'm just picturing next week just me preaching to Kim and, and the kids, you know, like maybe my parents might come as well. I don't know. But um, to make it clear, I would certainly hold more to a complementarian view, but we need to discern this together and, um, and do it wisely as we appoint leaders for this church to see this church become what we hope and pray it will be, a church that has a huge impact, a church that, that reaches men and women with the gospel, a church that sees men and women flourish in the gifts God's given them. And so that's what I pray will happen as we move forward into the future.